0: But as a business advisor, the name of the game between now and going into the 2030s is market share, gain market share.
1: You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to The Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Warren Buffett. Do not save what is left after spending. Instead, spend what is left after saving. My guest today, Brian Bullio, is the CEO of ITR Economics and is an esteemed economist with over 40 years of experience in business cycles and trend analysis. Brian has a track record of 96% accuracy in economic forecasts and is the author of popular books including Prosperity in the Age of Decline and Make Your Move, He's provided insightful workshops and seminars to thousands of executives and organizations around the world, and he and his work have been featured in The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, The Washington Times, CNBC, Fox Business TV, and numerous other media outlets. Brian is also a regular columnist and contributing economist to national trade associations and publications globally. Brian, welcome to the Elevate podcast.
0: Thanks, Robert. Thank you very much.
1: Glad to be here, really. So I'm always curious of, of sort of the beginnings. Um, tell me about your early life. What were there signs that you'd become uh, a, an economist
0: as a <laughs> as a child? <laughs> no, <laughs> no child wants to grow up to become an economist. You know, I, when I was a child, I was going to be an astronaut or something. I was not uh, an economist. Uh, I got interested in business um, in grade school, high school, but you know, business and economics are two different disciplines. It was only when I got to college, my freshman year, that I get introduced to economics. And I just fell head over heels in love with it. I was an accounting major of all things, Robert. And um, I quickly learned accounting is, I I know there are dynamic aspects to it. I get that. People groove to it. Um, But for me, it was very static. Whereas this thing called economics was constant motion. And it helped explain what was going to go on with businesses and what was driving those businesses. And I found that utterly fascinating It helped that I had a great professor, Dr. Alan McHosley, but I was hooked from that point on. So I, I left the county behind and I uh, went into economics. And you worked in the department of labor at one point, right? I did as an economist on the consumer price index, hmm. uh, the healthcare component was my, uh, my bailiwick back in the day. And what was, what were the, some of the takeaways that you took kind of to
1: your private sector work from kind of working in the government and behind the scenes on that.
0: Well, I was only in the private sector for about 9 months before I went to work for the government. I was Got right it. out of college, so I didn't have a lot of private sector experience to take with me. What I learned from the government though is there are a lot of stellar people working there at least in where I was working that cared deeply about getting it right, getting the numbers right. Um process was everything. And the material generally was really embargoed until uh, that actual release date. Very few people would know the final number before the final number came out, So the integrity was uh, quite high also. I was there for three years and one day. Uh, the one day ensures your reemployment rights as a federal employee. So I was there for three years <laughs> and one day, and then went back into the private sector. And at that time, I went to the Institute for Trend Research. Because that's what we were known as back then. So now that has
1: sort of developed into ITR economics. So tell us a little bit about what does your organization do?
0: Uh, The real short answer is (laughs) we provide uh, accurate business intelligence to businesses so that they can make profitable, rational decisions about the future. What how we do that is consulting. We consult with companies about their own trends, what's going on. We give speeches all over various and sundry countries flying around doing that. Now, me personally doing all this talking, we have a team. And then we have subscription services also. So uh, there's three different ways that we reach out to uh, people. You know, our mission, and and it sounds kind of corny, I guess, but my mission has always been uh, from the time I bought the Institute in 1987, two things. I was going to make capitalism work better. People stop making stupid mistakes uh, and the Same stupid mistakes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, at the same time, make a difference in this world like every young entrepreneur wants to do, right? Uh, but those have been my two mission drivers for the last 40 years, Robert. And uh, it's been a great run. Yeah,
1: and as I was mentioning before the call, I mean, you spoke to a group of CEOs uh, as part of a program I part of called EMP a few years ago. And I, I just one of those speakers who... Kind of resonated with me. And I think I'm seeing some of the things that you talked about happening. We'll get more into kind of this super cycle uh development, but it really, it really stuck with me and the data you showed behind that. A couple of things leading up to it. There's a lot of criticism of economists that they're better at analyzing the past than predicting the future. And people make we see all kinds of I think Nassim Tlaib, I I read his books and he's pretty funny. You know, he goes to these things and these people make these bold proclamations for next year. And he's like, well, show me your last five years. like you know before you tell this so so economists seem to be better at at analyzing the past than predicting the future however your group has this really high accuracy rate and what you've been doing for for a while and i think i know you've also heard the the quote history doesn't repeat but it rhymes so Mm -hmm. i'm guessing that aligns to your philosophy so tell me a little bit about like what you do sort of differently and then like looking at history, how, What what is rhyming now versus versus repeating?
0: Okay, uh, what we do differently uh, in, in a major way is before every engagement, we present our report card. This is how we did forecasting 2022 is what we're showing people right now. Eight headline items that never change. And it's on our website going back years and years so people can look it up. And we show the good and the bad, uh, Robert. For 2022, I messed up uh, the single-family housing starts forecast. We came in with only an 85.8% accuracy rating, which is not good enough by a long shot. So I own that. I explain what I got wrong, and you know, all the 898s and 99s are there. But it's important for people to see that it can go wrong, and you have to have some contingency planning involved there. Beyond that, what we do differently in, in you're very apt to bring up the rhyming rather than repeating itself. So our, our founder, Chapin Hoskins, would never hire an economist who wasn't also a musician because the economy Are there a is, lot of those? Yeah, there are. We hire Interesting. them. Interesting. Because there's such a confluence of factors and variables and influences that if you listen to just percussions, you're going to miss out on what the woodwinds are doing over here. And the woodwinds mm. are going to have an influence on this composition called the economy. So we're always weighing all these different variables and to what extent we've seen them in the past in this same paradigm? How has that played out? But it's never the same, right? I mean, the, the, there are always different trends going on, in that, and that at that point we get into our theories about well, what does that mean this time? How is the fact that savings adjusted for inflation today are coming down? How is that going to impact? What we see going on in the future, because we haven't seen this savings trend like this since 2000, 2001. and it was much milder back then. Because now we're living in this post COVID paradigm, where you know we're still feeling the ramifications of the government's reaction to COVID uh, here in twenty three. We're going to feel it more in twenty four. We're going to feel it more in twenty five. This thing has a very long tail associated with it, which is obviously brand new. You know, again, it goes with the rhyming. We did really well forecasting in 21 uh, and 20 and 21 and 22. And people were, you know, kind of how'd you do that? And it's it's the rhyming. We looked at natural disasters that have occurred here in the US, Japan, Europe. How did the economies behave? What were the reactions? What happened? What transpired? And then we looked at COVID and we said, all right, this is a global natural disaster. So we expect natural disaster type results for the economy and for governments, etc. And that's what happened. We didn't take the paradigm that this is a something we've never seen before since 2016 anyways with the Spanish flu. You just need to understand how to amplify uh, these events or scale them back for that matter. but it goes back to this, and I don't know if you're a believer in this or not people haven't changed in forever. People yeah. react to the same. Well, this is Ray stimuli. Dalio's
1: whole, uh, he, yeah, yeah. his whole investing philosophy. I Look, I heard you speak. You also, I think it was 2018 and I had just maybe paid off something. And, and I think you told our group, borrow as much money as you can at two and a half percent or whatever it was at the time. And like borrow until you, people won't let you <laughs> do it anymore. That, that would have been good advice because I think these were actually the years you predicted the inflation to start to pick up. I, I mean, I, I was part of a different group that had an economist speak, you know, when everyone was locked at home during 20 other uh, in 21. And, and he had all these charts that be ready for the greatest stock market prosperity in the next. And, and all of this stuff, because, you know, never been with this much M1 or M2 or money pumped in the economy, all this stuff. completely ignored the In retrospect, the inflation piece of that equation and yeah. how the Fed would react to it. You know, he was like, this is going to be the greatest economic expansion in the history of the world because. And you, I would have lost my shirt, but I realized he, he never talked
0: about inflation. It was, it was interesting. Yeah. He was <laughs> like, and as people do that, not just economists. They will tend to straight line extrapolate whatever yeah. is going on right now in front of them. And every company true.
1: who did that in 2021 fell in hard times in 2022. Oh, you, right? mean, you mean Peloton <laughs> may have done that? <laughs> right. There are a lot, right. Who acted like that was going to continue the rest of the world. Yeah, now. Yeah. It's kind of insanity. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So going back, if I remember, you were talking about the super cycles in 20, I was probably 18 or 19 and that they looked alike and we were, you know, this next 10 years, that we had been plugging the dam and plugging the dam, but eventually the dam was going to break. You know, there was going to be inflation. And I think by 2030, the whole thing was going to fall down on itself. Is that, is that still sort of your general prediction?
0: (laughs) Yeah, it is. Uh, Alan and I, my brother, who's in the business with me, we have a webinar coming up on July 27th. And that's the whole topic is uh, what are we still seeing for the 2030s? And we had to ask ourselves uh, because of COVID and all that deficit spending, right. uh, should we bring that timeline in? Because you may or may not recall, uh, our national debt, the size of our national debt was anticipated to be a major problem. And that just really ballooned during yeah. COVID. So we were getting asked that question a lot. And the, the answer we came back with is no, we don't have to change the timeline because that's only one factor amongst five. And what we realized. It isn't the size of the national debt that matters, Robert. It's when people lose faith in the U.S. government's desire or ability to pay back that debt. That's well, that, well where... that was a very recent phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, we passed a tipping point in April 2009. In April 2009, the United States, of its own free volition, allowed its national debt to exceed 80% of nominal GDP. 800 years of financial history shows you that when a country has gone that far, it has crossed a tipping point from which it is exceptionally difficult to recover, particularly the more you go beyond 80 percent. Now we're running at 120 percent. There's only one country that I have found in modern times, and this was post-World War II era. As a matter of fact, Sweden went to about 82 percent and then clawed its way back down to sanity because they passed the Constitutional amendment demanding a balanced budget over the course of a business cycle, and I like to remind people: what do you think the odds are of any congressman, president saying, "Oh yeah, we're going to balance the budget"? Uh, yeah, uh, it's just it's not going to happen. I, it, we are politically agnostic at ITR because I find Republicans and Democrats both want to engage in fairly ruinous behavior for their own yeah. political Re- ends, Re-election. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's the name of the game. So,
1: if you're advising sort of business leaders or economic leaders like where where are we in this cycle? I don't think people it, it seems we're in this game of chicken, right? So most of the things that people consider assets in the world is is debt that probably if, if it all had to be repaid it couldn't, but as long as everyone pretends it can be repaid, then then we continue to go on, but I, I think your point was like at some point you can keep plugging the dam and the Fed can jump in and do this stuff. But the only way to really fix it is is for it to wipe out, kind of like we had, you know, in the Great Depression. Is that is that still the track, or how would you advise a business owner or a business leader of what what this next decade is going to look like? What is the sort of super cycle prediction? And what does it look like historically?
0: For the next eight years, seven to eight years, um, social turmoil is going to characterize not only our society, but other societies. There's a, a tremendous, this is the age of social unrest, uh, according to the economic super cycle, as you uh, have dubbed it. And it's Expect- happened before, right? This is mimics previous periods. Uh, in that respect, it has. But there's a new element this time, and that is the negative demographic uh, that is China. You have the world's second largest economy losing people every year. Uh, less and less people, fewer and fewer workers, fewer and fewer consumers. Japan's been in that mode since about the mid-1990s. And most people don't really understand about Japan. Japan used to be the world's second largest economy. Now they're a distant third. The standard of living in Japan has been flat at best for the last 20 years. When your population is in decline, you are a fubar. okay? Mm-hmm. It is... Decline, you don't know what that means look it up followed yeah. yeah, up <laughs> beyond all recognition <laughs> china's po- population, populations are declining in a lot of countries in the world yes yeah. but you know where they're not united states canada mexico and for the next 30 years likely india india is more on the bubble and india is self-generated
1: but but um immigration drives a lot of the growth in those other countries right
0: yeah um we need to procreate faster here in the United States. And you look like you're young enough to be uh, part of the people I tell. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I have three. I've done my, done my job. Oh, three? Yeah. <laughs> okay, three. But you're intelligent, so why not go for four? <laughs> Anyways, Russia, negative demographic. It's going to become even more hollowed out. India has now, population-wise, eclipsed China. And with China's negative demographic and... They're becoming increasingly command control communist. Over the next 10 years, you're going to see the ascendancy of India. while China declines into more and more military importance, but less and less economic importance. And that's going to be very interesting uh, to watch. There's three things you need to, to have if you're going to be an economy that prospers long term. One, you have to have positive demographics. And as you said, lots of places don't have that. Two, you have to be rich in natural resources because of the inflation we're going to be going through. And the United States has been very mightily blessed with natural resources, as has Canada. And Mexico is reasonable. China has a relative paucity of natural resources. And the third thing, history is very, very clear on if you want to be a global dominant power, you must have the rule of law, it must be an independent judiciary. You must have intellectual property rights and private property rights, and you must have bankruptcy laws so that if you fail, you can get back on your feet and move forward. And North America is where you're going to find those things in abundance. would like finding it anyplace else. So while this super cycle is upon us and our debt is going to be a precipitating factor or at least a causal factor, China's demographics are going to be a causal factor also. And in the if you look in the post two thousand and thirty six period, the fact that we have millennials and Gen Z means we are going to vastly outperform our industrial competition. No one's going to be able to hold a candle to us.
1: Now, I, well, I've been, I I've been reading, and I, I don't know the cause of it, but twenty five percent of China's youth is unemployed. Like they just, I think they they geared everyone towards white collar jobs, and they need more blue collar. Workers, is that right?
0: Just like us, they do. <laughs> yeah. And also, though, we're seeing the labor participation rate in China plummet, and it's the it's a cultural shift in people's thinking. In this country, there's a very nice relationship between labor participation rates falling in those people, 16 to 24 year olds, and the advent of college loans. Uh, people stopped working their way through college; they took out loans instead of. Uh, working it is like the cross uh very very neatly
1: so we're gonna fare
0: well or or everyone's in trouble uh, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna be in a lot of trouble we have yeah. uh, our economy going down uh, six years before we bottom out uh it is going to be very painful for those who are not prepared but doing so six
1: years of gdp decline yeah and when, and when do you think that that starts
0: Oh, it'll be a Tuesday. I mean, you know, it's kind of far (laughs) out, right? We have it starting uh, late 29, early 2030.
1: Got it. So COVID hasn't changed your, I wasn't wondering whether the interest rates, and and so why then? Why that time? Because
0: it's the nexus of the debt, social security, uh, insolvency, medical care costs, demographics. Now we have like the rest of the world, we're an aging population, right? But we're not aging nearly as rapidly because of the younger generations that I mentioned. Old people, and this gets me into some trouble, old people suck resources out of an economy. We're takers. We're not working anymore. We're not paying taxes unless you're amongst the super rich and you're paying taxes on your social security or your other passive incomes. The government's taking care of our health care. We take a lot more out of the economy than we put back in. That's why. I said so were, when
1: the kids don't replace it, like this is, I mean, I've seen in France, there are all these outrages in, uh, in this and the government's like, what What do you want us to do? The numbers don't work. You can't. Right. We don't have right. enough people paying in to cover for everyone to retire at 55. Exactly. Yeah. And yet they're
0: riding over
1: this yeah. because,
0: <laughs> I mean, it's numbers. The, ma- the is, math's
1: not, it seems like just the math's not there, right? Even
0: if they wanted to culturally. Right. In yeah. terms of that six years of decline, by the way, don't think of it as one straight line. It's not. It's more like that roller coaster or that slide we put our kids on, you know, that's sort of bumpy on yeah. the way down. It's just rather relentless that way. And what Alan and I talk about, and thanks for mentioning the book, Prosperity in the Age of Decline, is you can choose to go the decline or you can look for the ways to prosper. There's always ways to make money. In fact, it's easier to make money during bad times than it is during good times. For instance, take real estate. You don't don't make a profit when you sell your real estate. You determine that the day you bought that real estate, right? It's a question of timing and knowing where to invest your money. The stock market is going to do miserable during most of the early 2030s. Well, if that's miserable, what's going to do well? Shift your thinking over to those resources that are going to do well. Because of the global demographics, what is going to be inflation throughout the 2020s and in the early 2030s, we'll switch over to deflation. So interest rates are going to be coming down in a rather precipitous way. If you've locked in a bond at a relatively high coupon rate, even if it's a very conservative bonds say a swiss government bond which is what we advocate for or a canadian government bond so as you lock it in at seven percent because it's at the inflation peak as deflation happens and interest rates come down what's going to happen to your uh be worth worth a lot more yeah and yeah. then you're going to sell it and you're going to go back into cash and then you're going to go back into hard assets and you're going to be the next joseph kennedy i mean it's
1: So it's, I, I remember you saying i think it was canada norway and australia or some something where you said you have to have population growth natural resources and a balanced budget those are the those are the countries that you want to yeah. invest in their bonds, it's, right? it's
0: canada australia switzerland and i now add sweden in there because okay. of uh, what's been going on in sweden yeah and what's the the, tri- is that are those the criteria yeah yeah, yeah. you remembered well good memory
1: i did I, take, I, I you know, I don't even take good notes, so I, I, I remember the key. The, I must the, have made an you know, impression I, on you. Well, it it made sense. So again, if you're a business owner, what what does real estate look like in that scenario? I guess all assets, or if that's deflationary, it's not good for hard assets. Right. It is not.
0: We'll get the question: um, Should I hold on to my real estate uh, going into the 2030s? And the answer is depends on your age. Depends if yeah. it's leveraged. If it's if you're carrying it. It depends what state you're in. I mean, my gosh, people in Illinois are going to get creamed during the 30s a lot more than people who live in Texas, who live in Florida. you got to play the demographics all the time. West Virginia is our version of China when it comes to uh, population trends. And does global
1: warming factor in this now and where people are going to want to be, where there's not a flood or a drought or any of these things. Oh, man. Don't you know it's not global warming, it's climate change? (laughs) Sorry, climate change, yes. (laughs) I I mean, it feels like now I joke with my friend, I was talking to someone in Europe, I'm like, if you go across the U.S. cities, you can choose between flood or drought or heat wave. Those seem to be your two choices right now.
0: For now, yeah. But how much of that is climate change? How much of that is that El Nino or El Nino? I don't know. I'm not a climatologist. I have friends who are, and they tell me that we're in for some pretty extreme... Uh, weather, but we've but seen got insurance that.
1: companies stopping. I don't think they're going to insure coastal properties in three or five years, or maybe at premiums that only very few people can pay.
0: It's really funny. It depends on the caliber of your house. I live in Florida, as I mentioned to you before we came online. And after the last hurricane went through, our homeowner premiums, no change. Hmm. A friend of ours who lives No closer to the water, but on a different part of the island. They wanted to raise his homeowners insurance fifty thousand dollars a year
1: because of the difference in how the house was constructed.
0: Yeah, so So, you've got you've got concrete and rebar, uh, and (laughs) I got a wind mitigated roof that isn't going to go flying off like in uh, the Wizard of Oz. But uh, it makes a difference. But a lot of insurance companies, to your point, are pulling out uh, from the coastal areas, and we have some clients that are insurance, and they won't touch. Those coastal areas, for that reason, they stay right in the heart of America. But even then, the the Mississippi River floods, and that's catastrophic. Inflation is uh, an insurance company slayer, probably more than uh, coastal flooding in terms of what it does to their balance sheets.
1: So if you were, if you were a business leader, business owner, or you were someone overseeing considerable personal assets, like how, I am a a business (laughs) owner, (laughs) 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 or if you're advising, how would you, and you're like, how do you think about these things? Is this something to, is this something to fear? Is this an opportunity? Do you, you, like you said, there's always pockets of strength within the weakness, but, but, you know, a six year negative GDP is something no one's I, I think, seen in their lifetime that's probably managing anything right now.
0: Oh, they haven't. And that's going to be the hard part. They just don't have a mental paradigm for what we're talking about. We're already telling our audiences, like, if if you think you're going to build wealth over the next seven years, like you built wealth over the last 30 years with a naive buy-whole strategy, you lose. And if I may give you a case in point.
1: When you say uh, next seven years, you mean these seven years or the seven years starting? I mean 2023 the... to two thousand. Okay,
0: got it. You lose. I was looking at two of my our daughters uh, and their husband's retirement, 401k, IRA. And these poor kids, their companies have them invested in mutual funds. And there's a time and a place for mutual funds, right? But one of my kids, $150,000, because they're young, this one, Uh, And they haven't spread across eight different mutual funds. Well, that's stupid. Uh, But when I raised that, they said, well, it's going to be worth X number of dollars if you just hold on to it for the next 40 years. And I'm thinking that this person isn't playing with a full deck. Uh, And these mutual funds were grossly underperforming the stock market. So the first thing, and although I am a, a registered investment advisor, one of the first things I tell people is. Gauge how your portfolio is doing. Make your financial planner show you how has my investment done relative to the stock market. If I'm not even keeping up with the stock market, right? Then i as also just sell all that other stuff and buy, buy an index fund. Yeah, yeah, and and do better, and don't get married to the index fund either, because uh, there are ways that you want to be able to beat that. We have a program at itr called the Optimizer that we developed, and it operates on the premise that no one can time the, The market accurately, time and time again. I believe that's just impossible. There's a random walk going on there. Yeah. But the name of the game is generally know which sectors of the economy are going to outperform others. And you mentioned our track record, and that's what we do. We look at which sectors of the economy are likely to hold up better than others. Even in the super cycle that you were mentioning, we've identified employment areas, we've identified sectors of the economy that will likely be relatively speaking bulletproof during the 2030s why are we doing that because we want your kids my grandkids to go into fields and go into study programs that are going to make them insulated from all that economic turmoil
1: and what are one or one or one or two of those as an example
0: sure um not not surprisingly State, local, and federal protection services are relatively immune to this. So, if you have a son or a daughter that's a fireman or rides an ambulance or is a police officer, they're going to be just fine. Teachers tend to be just fine in this country because the demographics are going to be fine. Uh, So, none of these are high flying incomes, but it's just basic blocking and tackling. Healthcare, nurses, doctors, they're going to be fine through this. Uh, The legal profession, uh, accountants tend to be fine. Who's going to be really not fine? The guy selling luxury items to people who no longer have all that discretionary mm-hmm. income.
1: So the cons- yeah, they, right the in the U.S. the consumer has just been the driver of the economy. So you're saying that 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 domino is going to fall?
0: Yep, yep, fall and fall hard. But then it's over with by 2036. It's over with. And ask me why. Go ahead. Ask me why. 2036. Why,
1: I, I was going, I mean, how can you not? Why, why
0: why why does the misery end in 2036? We start coming out of it uh, post-2036, because by 2036, the majority of us baby boomers are dead. Hmm. So the baton of power has passed to a younger generation. The wealth has passed to a younger generation. And my generation is- And no the longer. liability is gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And we're- North America alone is going to be able to say that. I mean, Africa can say that, but they're they're all messed up because they don't have the rule of law, right? If they could ever get the rule of law, they would. Do do you think the rule of law is a little bit at risk here based on some of the things we've seen lately? I would if I haven't studied history. Study your history and you know that we're rhyming with uh, periods we've gone through before. Mm -hmm. There's a really cool book if you haven't read it, and I don't get any money if you read this book, called The Triumph of William McKinley. It's a, it's a worthwhile book written by Karl Rove, which is going to be a turn-off for some people. Yeah. But uh, it is still a very well-reasoned, very good book, no matter what your personal feelings are toward Mr. Rove. I was on a panel with him, by the way. The man's exceedingly bright and balanced, uh, although he's not always portrayed that way. But it's worthwhile reading. And so this this the wealth transfer or
1: what's left of, left of it, you're saying, is the main... Is sort of the main shift.
0: Uh, and uh, uh, now I got to engage in a little bit of a stereotype here. People my age, and for your audience who's listening, I'm 67 years old, we have a tendency to be reluctant to readily adapt or adopt new technologies. Mm-hmm. We're much more, and let alone investing in them, we're more interested in preserving our wealth than betting on new technologies, new ways of doing things. We already know that the millennials thrive in terms of systemic thinking. And they are of the age group where they are willing and able to adopt and adapt these technologies into brand new industries. I don't know if you're familiar with Joseph Schumpeter, a very famous economist who created the phrase, who coined the phrase creative destruction, Yeah. right? The 2030s is going to be this period of creative destruction and the younger people, are the ones that are going to drive this thing, and we're going to have them driving it. Whereas there's a lack of them in any other, every other industrial nation, which is a huge leg up that we have. You know, there's so much chatter right now about AI, Robert. We haven't <laughs> even begun to think through all the ramifications of AI in a both positive po- Both way. positive and negative. Yeah, yeah. both. There was a, a great book written by an economist named Gerhard Mensch called innovation in the long wave and the long wave is the super cycle when you have asset destruction like we're talking about you know assets are going to be written off uh capital is freed up when you do that that capital starts to look for new places to be invested and those will be into the green shoots and they'll give rise to whole new industries that aren't even on our horizon right now and this is only 15 years away 13 years away
1: what do you think about energy transformation
0: Uh, Oh, look at that. We're out of time. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're going to be on a fossil fuel economy for a lot longer than most people realize. EVs and the electrification of everything would be a lot closer to reality if we had the infrastructure, the grid to pull that off. We do not. Mm -hmm. It sounds great but we don't have the means to pull it off. We're going to be on fossil fuels for quite some time, hopefully cleaner versions of the fossil fuels, which can be accomplished, but it's, you know, that's, that's an episode.
1: That's an episode itself. So I, I just, you know, trying to wrap it up. I know you talk about, okay, so with 2030 is sort of the beginning of this cliff ends in 2036. Um, Rates are probably higher than because of COVID, because of all the money stimulus that people thought right now. But but it looks like inflation is coming down due to these high rates, but you don't think it's it you don't think that's a sustainable trend for the next five I or seven not. years?
0: Okay. I do not know. And the single easiest reason to accept that is this. We have a labor shortage in the United States, and there's no way to solve that labor shortage, and that's going to keep the cost of labor high. And when the cost of labor is sticky on the way down, even during a business cycle downturn, you aren't going to get rid of inflation. It's not going to go back to the way it was. We are stuck at a higher level of inflation.
1: And so do you think the Fed's going to keep raising rates?
0: I think they're going to stop here in July. Uh, They may go up one more time uh, because it'll catch back down to their acceptable range if they're halfway intelligent. And by the way, that's debatable. But as soon as the economy starts heating up again in 2025 and 26 and 27, then our labor shortage. Rears so those are going to
1: be head. those are going to be growth years. You think heading yeah. into this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I do. So this is a, this is a narrow window to to navigate the up, the down, <laughs> and then the down.
0: Okay. Yeah. If if you're not fleet of foot, you know, if you're slow decision maker, um, good luck. This is the time. Just like I was saying back in 2018, not to do it with debt now because of these interest rates, uh, but this is a time to be aggressive with one's business. Now you asked me as a, on the investment side of things, but as a business advisor, the name of the game between now and going into the 2030s is market share gain. Market share. Do it with new products. Go into new geographies. Do it by acquisitions. But he or she who's gaining market share going into the 2030s in Again, the right markets, you don't want to be the king of bowling balls going into a depression. Yeah. Um, you win. You'll be fine.
1: And you win because even you're falling from a high perch. Is that the is that well, you're falling an... a
0: high perch, yeah. and if you own the market share, you own the price. Better stress. pricing.
1: Okay. So pricing power is going to be very important. Yes, sir. The the only problem is that people have been chasing market share at the expense of profitability for the last couple of years, and no one seems to want to fund that anymore. So people are going to have to figure out how to do that in a little bit of a different way.
0: And they have to. And the answer to that, by the way, isn't all that difficult. If you really know your competitive advantage, you can protect your margins and gain share at the same time. But you've got to know your real competitive advantage. You mentioned our, uh, our forecast accuracy. That's our competitive advantage. That's why we tout it all the time. That's our moat that we've created around ourselves. Every company out there has to know what their competitive advantage is. What's the moat that protects them and compels people to go to them? And if you're looking at a company that thinks it's price, they don't get it. So many double-blind market research studies have been conducted that show that price, unless you're in a truly commoditized business...
1: Or unless you're like a Walmart or an Amazon and you have the massive infrastructure
0: to do that but it's but it's right. a very few right yeah right price matters usually it's number 3 or 4 hmm. and walmart's great at destroying their suppliers so I'm not sure that's a great example but uh,
1: no i'm just saying they, they yeah not how they do it but they seem <laughs> to have the scale and the ability to yeah. do it i wouldn't want to try to compete against walmart on price right that no. wouldn't be a great wouldn't be a great strategy no no it certainly wouldn't maybe on safe zones but uh, not on that right. So stay in the game. So so we're going to have a quite a bit of a rebound, it sounds like. You do think we're going to come out of this, but we're going to come out hot on the economy and
0: hot on inflation? hmm And yeah. push the pedal to the metal till we get into that 2030 period. And before we hit that downside, if you're thinking you want to get out of the game of business, then do so in 28 or 29 while the getting's good. Sell your business. Yeah. Sell your business to your kids if they've been rotten kids. I mean, let them take it that. <laughs>
1: With a with a long-term loan yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: uh, high interest loan yeah <laughs> no no you want all your cash up front right? you don't want to sit paper
1: okay so and then when do you you know people try to time things too perfectly so so in in a downturn in a six-year downturn when do you start investing for
0: the other side of that in your mind well if we're right about 36 you start investing uh, for that rise in 35. so
1: you wait uh, you wait 80 percent of the way through
0: yeah if I capture 80% of any given trend, I am so far ahead of the game. I don't have to capture any more than 80% of the trend, and uh, one does exceedingly well.
1: All right, Brian. So the last question I usually ask is sort of about a mistake that you've learned from, I think, uh, in this context, would be really helpful. What, what's a prediction that you got wrong that you learned the most from, and sort of why?
0: Uh, the year was 1983, um, which nobody listening is going to remember. But uh, in 1982 and going into 83, we thought the economy was going to continue to do poorly. The early 80s was a very rough time for the U.S. economy. And we were forecasting that it was going to continue to do poorly. Some leading indicators had turned up. And we were rationalizing those leading indicators instead of utilizing those leading indicators to ask ourselves, are we wrong here? Is there something we're not understanding? And 83 came in as an up year, and uh, that was the worst forecasting year that I've been through with ITR in the last 40 years. Um, So what I learned was, and this is what most economists fall prey to, don't rationalize the data, utilize the data, Mm. and uh, you'll be that much better off. That's a very broadly applicable lesson for, for many of us particularly with all the data that we have today. Oh yeah, and a lot of noise, it's not all data. A lot of it's just noise. All
1: right, Brian, thank you for joining us. Uh, your, your insight into the economic trends and their, particularly the applications is is incredibly interesting. I appreciate you sharing some of your forecasts with us.
0: Robert, it's been my pleasure and I'll be happy to come on down the road if you want to do it again, because it's been all right.
1: fun. Well, we're going to book you for 2030 and 2036 too. So we'll get those, we'll get those yeah, okay. two in there.
0: Yeah, okay you might want to send some Zoloft <laughs> just us, just but, just just uh, yeah
1: just have a backup you know <laughs> up, so all right to our listeners thanks for tuning into the Elevate podcast today we'll include links to Brian and to ITR on the detailed episode page at Robertglazer.com. thank you again for your support until next time keep elevating